Our football pyramid is so special in this country. Football clubs are so important to towns and communities and they bring people together. So we've got to try and find a way of protecting them and help them survive. Clubs were going to the wall just before the pandemic and now it's going to be incredibly difficult for a lot of football clubs to maintain an existence. Hi, I'm David Davis and I'm a consultant with Portland. After 40, sometimes turbulent years in BBC television news and, of course, the FA. This is my very first podcast and my guest, frankly, needs very little introduction. Gary Lineker has had two hugely successful careers as a professional footballer with clubs, amongst others like his first Leicester City and Everton and Spurs and then Barcelona, not to mention 48 goals for England. And then, of course, as a television presenter, who is one of the best known and, yes, best paid faces on the box. You're very welcome to this edition of To The Point. A quick note, in case you're wondering why it doesn't come up in conversation, This episode was recorded before the Super League debacle unfolded. I hope you enjoy the episode. Gary Lineker, I think you and I first met at Italia 90, that fantastic World Cup, when I was lucky enough to be the BBC reporter with the England team in Sardinia. And then I won a toss with Tony Gubber, the late Tony Gubber, a year later, Spurs v Nottingham Forest, and Jimmy Hill tossed a coin, and I won the toss and chose to be with Tottenham, frankly because of El Tell. Yeah, good decision. And that was the main reason. <laughs> and now here's something where I'm unique with you. I presented Match of the Day three times in my life as the fill-in for the fill-in for the <laughs> fill-in for Desmond and others in those days. And the pundits, the first time, were called Lineker and Brooking. Yeah, and I remember, I remember that it, I remember it. December debut. evening as well, very well. My question really to you is, what would the Gary Lineker of those days have made of the Gary Lineker today? Um, I think he'd have probably been surprised um, by him. I think he's, he's changed about. It's quite cold. As a, certainly, as a, not perhaps in the early years of my broadcasting career but certainly my playing career I was quite probably a cold individual I was so focused on what I was doing probably a little bit selfish um, back then I think you'd be quite surprised that he's turned into this so-called liberal lovey um, which is not quite <laughs> totally truth but um, so he's, he's changed a bit and you do change things happen in your life that change things overall and we're different people as we as we get older and we have different thoughts on various things yeah What's the biggest change in Gary Lineker, would you say, in your attitudes? I mean, I, I'm, when I think of, I can remember you days before the semi-final with West Germany in Italia 90, I can remember the, the famous Gary Lineker toe mm. that was, was injured yeah. for a remarkable length of time. And, <laughs> and I remember you, it was a day we, you didn't go to training and I didn't go to training for whatever reason. And you were sitting by the swimming pool and it seemed to me, you were, you were very much at ease with the world, and hey, there's a World Cup semi-final coming up. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think that um, side of me has changed particularly. I'm, I'm, it's not necessarily laid back because I'm also quite driven and um, I've always been hugely ambitious, but I've always been quite, had a, an equable nature. So I've always been kind of, never got too carried away when things were going well. And, and luckily enough, I don't get down or, or depressed in any way, shape or form when things aren't going um, so well. And I think that has helped me in both walks of life that I've been in. Um, certainly as a striker, you have to be, you have to have a calmness and, and possibly a coldness to you when you're in big situations, particularly in big games, particularly in the games you mentioned in, the, in, in Italia 90, for example. You've got to be composed. And I think that helps in live television as well. So I don't, you know, I've never suffered from nerves um, and I never get too carried away by things and, and try not to take things too seriously in life. <laughs> and that's that's always been part of, you know, part of me is, have a bit of fun at times, have a bit of fun at myself at times and, and have a bit of fun at situations which perhaps are not that fun at times. But that's just my sense of humour. Other than the late Jimmy Hill, it was quite unusual for a former player to become a presenter yeah. rather than a pundit. How did that come about? Well, it, it's part of the reason for me wanting to be a presenter was the fact that it was so rare. And I, I looked at it and I saw, obviously, Jimmy Hill did it to a degree, but not that much. And he was, in fact, he actually, he was once, he's once presenter and the analyst, wasn't he, on a few master days. <laughs> and a few other things. Asking himself about the analysis. <laughs> Bit bizarre, but that's Jimmy for you. Bless him. So, and Bob Wilson was the only other one that I could think of. And he was, a, he was obviously a goalkeeper, so that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> so I actually thought to myself, um, I wanted to go into television. I never saw myself as a coach or a manager. I just don't think I'd have been very good at it. But I didn't... Why, why, lo- why would you not have been very good as a coach or a manager? Because I, I was never that keen on training, let alone standing <laughs> on the sidelines watching other people train. That's really dull. Uh, but not so much that. But I'm, I'm not really... I don't find... I don't think I'd be particularly motivational. I don't really get football. Well, I do get football. I understand football and stuff. But um, tactically, I only really knew my craft. And I know my craft as well as anyone. I used to have managers shout at me and I used to think, stop trying to tell me something you know a lot less about than I do. Um, but when it comes to midfield and this and rotations and, and, and defensive formations and stuff, even now when I sit alongside pundits, you know, say Rio Ferdinand nowadays, defender, um, Alan Hansen particularly, there's so many times I used to sit and they used to talk about this analysis and I used to go, Oh, yeah. <laughs> so also, I didn't really think I'd have a great deal of longevity if I was a pundit because I, I think my my knowledge is basically focused around being a goal scorer, being a str- I knew that as well as anybody, and I still believe that to this day. Other aspects of the game, less so. So, But I did think if I could crack presenting, it would give me a bit of a niche and it would give me an edge over other presenters because I've been there and done it, and no one else has had played anywhere near my level and gone on to present regularly on TV. So I'd looked at other sports and you saw people like David Gower in cricket, Sue Barker in tennis, just to name a couple, that had mastered their sports and then gone on to present. And I thought football lacked that. Um, And I thought it might give me longevity and and thankfully so it proved to be. Were you helped in in the early days at the BBC? I mean, there was always a lot of criticism inside the BBC that I knew well. Still is. People... (laughs) People, yeah, that people were thrown in at the deep end. Yeah. Did you feel you were helped? 
I, I was definitely helped. I was helped a lot um, back in the early days. Brian Barwick gave me my chance, um, and then it was Niall Sloan and, and Philip Burney that helped me in TV, and they they guided me. But the truth is, in live television, in live television presenting, there's nowhere to practice. It's not like football <laughs> where you've got you've got all your upbringing, where you can kick the ball around in the garden, you can play with your mates, you can play matches, you can train. But in TV, on live television, there's only one way to learn. You can't have dummy programs. You might get an odd pilot if there's some quiz show coming up. But yeah. life, it was in at the deep end. And I remember my first presenting gig was, was Euro 96 highlights. And I was sat there and I just thought, oh, dear. That <laughs> was the one time in my life I was probably really nervous. And, um, and it, you know, I wasn't very good in the, in the early days. Why, why would I be? I hadn't any, I'd done a bit of radio and that helped me a bit. But I hadn't done any live TV and there were times I used to drive home particularly when I started presenting Football Focus I used to drive home at Saturday lunchtime thinking I'm never going to be able to crack this I'm just not going to get it but over a period of time two, three, four years I just got gradually better luckily enough I wasn't awful enough for them to get rid of me in the first few weeks so they stuck with me and I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that and I got a lot of feedback a lot of help One of the things I always remembered about those early days was the role of John Holmes in your life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. agents had then still have a terrible image, a wretched image, and yet John always seemed to be rather different as an agent. Mm. What sort of an agent was he? How influential was he? Well, John's still my agent. He was brought in by John Wallace at Leicester to advise us on pensions when I was um, 18, <laughs> um, and he saw something in me as a, as a player, and, and he guided me and gave me advice, and then... He's, he's looked after me ever since. We've never had a contract. Um, but John's a, a rare breed in, in, in the agency game, particularly nowadays. And in, back in the day, there were lots of, I think, reputable people. And there's still some reputable agents. Of course there are. Mm. But, you know, there are a lot of <laughs> disreputable ones as well. But John, um, he's very straight, very straight talking, but also a very straight individual, very honest, um, has been hugely important in my life, in football and after football. And, and I was lucky that, that we connected when I was early. He's looked after, you know, lots of great sports people. Now he just does um, kind of sports presenters. He's, he's 10 years older than me. Um, so, um, but, we, you know, we still have a, a very close relationship, yeah. And I, I was lucky because I've had such good guidance from him. Does he do the negotiations for you for, yeah. for yeah, television? Yeah, he's to blame. As he so did when everyone has a go about my salary, he's blame him, blame home. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's right. I mean, you, you, you mention all that. You, you, I mean, you're, you've had well-paid careers by any standards. Yes, I've been very fortunate. I'm totally aware of that. And, and I'm, still yeah. from, I'm still from the old school who thinks that even in a public corporation like the BBC, revealing salaries is somewhat – is not what should be happening. Am I naive? Am I old-fashioned? Well, what? I kind of agree with you. I could do without it, really, because it happens every summer. And obviously, I, you know, as one of the top paid people at BBC, you know, I get pelters for it every every time it comes out. Um, but it's with us now. It's part of it. Um, I've been with the BBC a long time. I'm totally aware that around the world of football, we get hugely well paid. Um, and it's the same in, in television football all around, you know. Um, and believe you me, I've had offers where I could have gone elsewhere for more. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm 
you know, I'm never going to sit there and try and say, well, I, I deserve my salary over what a nurse earns, for example. Of course, I just know I'm incredibly fortunate. And I appreciate the fact that I was, I was born with a skill that has, has given me much to enjoy in life. Um, very fortunate. Are you embarrassed ever about it when money um, comes up? Sometimes, but do you know what? People don't moan about too many people's salaries, uh, but they do moan about footballers' salaries and, and people that go into television afterwards in football. You don't necessarily see the criticism elsewhere. I don't know. I still think somewhere deep down we don't like working-class lads doing well. You know, do people moan about Formula One drivers and how much they earn? Do they moan about golfers how much they earn? What about, you know, musicians? Musicians, earn, you know, really successful ones earn vast amounts of money. Big actors the big ones earn vast amounts of money. Um, but we don't really get people complaining about them. But if footballers, well, if you're doing, you know, working class lads, I'm not sure they should be doing that well. Um, I get it. I understand it. And it's, you know, believe you me, I, it's much better getting criticised for earning too much than, than not earning enough to live. And I get that. Looking at today's players and managers and coaches, I can remember working with various England managers over the years, <laughs> as I did, and they got incredibly sensitive about criticism on television, and I, I still see it and I still hear about it. Do you think your former profession, that people there are oversensitive about criticism? Um, I don't, yeah, people handle criticism in different ways, don't they? I think, particularly in football, though, there's, there's so much bile aimed at people in football. Um, and, you know, look at managers. They're probably the most sensitive to criticism. But you can understand why. It's an incredibly stressful, yes, it's well paid, but it's an incredibly stressful 24-7 job. There's always something to be worried about. And I think over a period of time, it gets to them. And I think... I'm not saying they go paranoid, but I, I no, I've, I've had lots of good relationships with lots of coaches and managers, but it's remarkable, you know. You can say, say even on Twitter, for example, you could do 999 really positive tweets about <laughs> Liverpool, Manchester United, Jurgen Klopp, or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, or, but the one time you might have a criticism, which you're perfectly entitled to do, occasionally they do get things wrong, that's the one thing they remember. When they see you, they go, oh, yeah, what about that time when you said that? And you go, hang on a minute, what about all the 999 times where I said something incredibly positive? And most of them are a little bit like that. But I think also when there's so much passion and so much pressure on, on their job that um, it's, it's understandably like that. Generally, I try and be hugely supportive of managers and players. Um, I've never called for a manager to be sacked. I always try and be on the side of players. Um, you know, they're young men. They make mistakes occasionally, obviously, but they also do a huge amount of good that doesn't get so much publicity uh, within communities, etc. And, and we've seen it, haven't we, in the pandemic with, you know, the players coming together, raising funds for the NHS, Jordan Henderson getting all the captains together, Marcus Rashford with the school meals, um, you know, numerous players with Black Lives Matter, and they've made you know they've made a real difference and a real positive difference. And I'm quite pretty proud of my sport um, over the last year. I think they've done a lot. Yes, there's been one or two of made mistakes, um, disobeying the guidelines, etc. On occasions, they're young men. I've got four boys. They're in their twenties. 
and they do make they do silly things sometimes, and um, and they get more punished than anyone else when they do it because they're on the front pages of newspapers. If you were, a, if you had got against your instincts and become a manager or a coach, do you think you'd be as sensitive as they are, or are, and are you as sensitive? I mean, you've had criticism over the years, not least in yeah. in television. Are you sensitive to criticism of that sort? Um, I think it affects everybody in certain ways. I'm not overly sensitive, though. I've got a reasonably thick skin. Um, otherwise, I probably wouldn't be on social media at all and stuff. But, yeah. uh, but you know, by and large, I always think there's way more positive energy sent in my direction than there is negative. And I think it's important sometimes to understand that. You know, you might get... It's like what I just mentioned before. If, the, if you read 999 nice things, it's the one bad thing that you read that might affect you in, inside. But it's, it's important to have that balance and realisation that actually, as long as the majority are on your side, you're doing okay. And also, obviously, we're living in a time of, of trolling and, and keyboard mm. warriors or whatever you want to call them, that it's their moment. And a lot of them just do it to try and get a bite from you. So it doesn't overly bother me. Occasionally, there's the, you know you might see something and you think, "Oh, that's you know, it's a bit strong," you know. But it it is what it is. But if you were a black player, for example, who was going through, so you mentioned yeah. the trolling that some of the black players, particularly, have gone through, yeah. are going through as we speak. I mean, that would be bound to affect a young person. Oh, that absolutely, that kind of thing. That's you know that. You know, being criticised for how you present a TV show or how you play in a football match is one thing, but being criticised or slandered for the or whatever way you want to describe it for the for the colour of your skin is an entirely different matter. Um, and obviously, that is unacceptable and something that we, as a unit, football is trying to trying to address. It's it's more of a societal problem, I think, than and a football problem. But obviously, it. Um, it's highlighted um, particularly in in football, so it's it's something that we, we fight against. And um, I just I just cannot. And there's nothing inside me that understands how people can judge someone by the colour of their skin. I've never understood it. And it, in my era, there was no social media in my era. But I went. Out, I was on an aeroplane flying with the England team. I was sat next to John Barnes, and two England fans came down and said, "You shouldn't play for England because of the colour of his skin, basically." And, and so I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it in football matches. I played in the area where it was awful. You know, they were, it's, I've seen bananas thrown on the pitch. Sure. I mean, you know, what possesses anyone to do that? I don't know. But how you change it, because they are obviously a small minority, it's worth pointing that out as well. But how you change it is, is difficult. And it takes time and it takes education, I believe. And I think... Um, and it'll probably take generations to, to you, really eradicate it, hopefully. Do you remember how John reacted, John Barnes reacted, how you reacted when that happened? Well, John, John was, John's kind of very calm and he's a very intelligent man. Yeah, I, sure. I think I was probably more upset than him on his behalf. I mean, it's a long time ago. It's probably 34 years ago, something like that. But um, it was, I, I just couldn't believe it. I just said, you know, I think I may have used the F word. <laughs> let's ask you to crystal ball gaze for a few minutes when you look at our domestic game if you could change something in the next decade what would you change well beyond the subject we've just talked about eradicating injustice and racial abuse and those kind of things would would be great more equality beyond that 
I mean, I think the sport's in a it's, it's in a good place, really. I mean, we've, we we have our issues in this country, don't we? We know we do. We have three governing bodies for a start. Who has that? <laughs> um, you've got the Football Association, you know, the Football League and, and um, the Premier League, and they're not always on the same hymn sheet. And they have different interests. What do you mean, not always? Well, when are they? Um, <laughs> that's a good point. Hopefully, occasionally. Hopefully, occasionally they are. Um, I'm, I'm sure they try. So you know, we have difficulties in that. I'd like to see the game come together for the for the greater good. But we have an unbelievably good product. Uh, our football is, you know, it's it's good to watch. It's difficult this year because it's, you know, we've got no crowds, and we've no, we've seen, haven't we, the difference without without it no, none of us are pretending it's as good with our fans uh, but at least we've got it to watch at home it's something it's not the same no one's pretending it's the same but it's better than nothing and football has been good that it's managed to keep going and kept us entertained at home something to watch I don't want to do otherwise I must admit that first bit of lockdown when we went what did we go about three months without any football whatsoever or any sport to watch I mean I always used to wonder what do people do in life when they've got no interest in sport yeah. And I found out. I mean, I he's, dread, he's dreadfully dull. Um, I thought. What do they do? I don't know. They, I mean, obviously they listen to music, but we all do that anyway, or whatever they do. I yeah. read. A lot of people read. I read. I like reading books, but God, that's not enough. Um, so, so it was. A, it was a strange time. But I think you know, football. It's big business nowadays, isn't it? It's this, It's huge. Um, it's it's global. It's it's growing all the time. It's a it's a big money game. Um, you know, we mentioned agents. I think you know. I think I'd change a few things around how agents can act within football clubs. And I think agents should act just for the player, not for a club. I think the clubs nowadays have got enough people working for them where they can negotiate themselves and not get, have to go via an agent. The agent should just represent a player and only the player can pay the agent. Um, that's one change I've made. I've, you know, I need other things to, in terms of the overall game and how, how the big clubs help the small clubs and stuff. And it's, it, it's complex, but again, we need all the governing bodies to come together to, on that. Yeah. You talk about all the governing bodies coming together. I've been yeah. part of a group with Gary Neville, amongst others, yeah. recently, saying that actually reforming the, the FA, the Premier League, the EFL, is impossible is. from inside the game and yeah. calling for a regulator not to run football but to make change possible. Do you feel that that would be a worthwhile step forward? I think it'd be worthwhile as long as it just didn't become a, a fourth body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think if you could get the three governing bodies on board and um, have representatives from each or whatever, I think it could work. But it's not going to work if the Premier League are not interested. And it's not going to work if the Football League are not interested. Certainly one of those two. The FA, you know, the FA is slightly different anyway, isn't it? But, you know, you've, you've got to have all people on board with change. You can't make change unless the powers that be want it. But the gap, Gary, between rich and poor is getting wider, yeah. has probably got wider during the pandemic even, even this past Absolutely. year. Absolutely. Isn't that uh, unacceptable? Um, it's, it's, it's deeply worrying. I mean, obviously the game has lost huge amounts um, during this period. The big boys will be okay, of course, um, because they generate the most revenues, most followed. Obviously, they're the biggest box office teams on TV. They play in big competition. 
But I think what we've got to maintain is the, the try the football pyramid because football clubs are so important to towns and communities. You know, they bring people together. So we've got to try and find a way of, of protecting them and helping them. And I think they, you know, the football community would come together and try and do that in the big clubs. But, you know, obviously you can understand some of them are pro it and some of them are not pro it because they say, well, hang on, that doesn't happen in other walks of life with the yes. businesses. So, but football's different. It's, it's, it's so, it's so important to communities that we've, you know, they've got to try. And I, you know, I've spoken to one or two, you know, big people at big football clubs and, you know, they want to try and help. It's just, it's just how, how they do it and how they get everyone on board. But we do need to try. We do really need to try because we're seeing clubs were going to the wall just before the pandemic. And now without any fans or team, you know, it's going to be incredibly difficult for a lot of football clubs to maintain an existence. Is it reasonable to expect the bigger clubs to help smaller clubs? Because people say, you know, there are, there are chairman of clubs who say, hey, uh, Marks and Spencers doesn't help the little corner shop. Yes. So why should, we, why should that happen in football? Well, that's the point I made, but it's so important for communities. And I think the big football clubs do get that. And there was a power play. Well, there was something recently where the, the, the big clubs talked about trying to do a thing, yeah. but the other clubs in the Premier League didn't want it because, you know, there was part of the giving to the smaller ones was trying to get a little bit more power at the top end. So there's always a, you know, there's always a power struggle. I think, you know, the Premier League has said they're going to do stuff for clubs. You know, it is a very wealthy league, but at the same time, even the Giants have lost fortunes, fortunes during this pandemic. And they are, you know, they're owned by individuals or they're owned by big businesses or actually some of them are owned by countries, obviously, nowadays as well. Hugely wealthy ones. And a lot of these clubs have done an enormous amount of good in their communities and they have helped football clubs and the Premier League have given money but we've got to try and find a way our football pyramid is so special in this country so it's it's not unique there are other countries but it's such a beautiful thing for each little town even if they get a small support to have you know have their little professional football club um and i think we've got to try and help them survive particularly through this and, and we were seeing problems even before it but it's going to be exacerbated I was reading an article about you last weekend in one of our newspapers, and you said you made a point which has been made over the years, that sport in schools is still not a priority and that government is missing a huge trick by not making it a priority. Can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, of course. It's something I've I've felt um, strongly about for a long time, is that it's kind of... It's an aside, isn't it, sport and schools and PE and it's um, fitness and exercise, which if you think about it, it's actually something that should be really, really important in schools. We had the period, didn't we, um, decades ago where so many school playing fields were sold off. But there is still ways of making sport important. For me, it should be the third most important thing on the curriculum. English, obviously, and reading is the most important thing of all. Um, basic mathematics is very important. After that, is there anything more important than sport? You learn so much in life. Uh, you learn about winning. You learn about losing. You learn about uh, performing as a team. You, you learn about helping individuals. Um, you learn about people when they go through bad spells and good spells. It's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's about part of life. Um, and it's healthy. 
and you won't pump the oxygen around your body and it keeps it stops you being obese huh. um, which has become a problem so there, there are so many good aspects to it but it's kind of in the upper echelons of parliament etc and the, our government it's it's not that important to them except when England are doing well in a World Cup then they'll all they'll all be on there oh yes I'll be to pop their chests out tell England we're proud to support England and it's all, but that's the only time you hear them except the other times you hear them is if some footballer makes a mistake or something and then they go oh those footballers we don't like them so I don't know I'm just talking about football I'm talking about all sport and exercise and physical exercise it's just not given the credibility that it deserves and should have because it's such a it, it's such a positive thing in all sorts of ways there are no negatives to it when you talked about your children, you mentioned your sons earlier. Did you encourage them or discourage them from going into sport, professional sport? Oh, no. I mean, they were always keen to go into sport anyway. And if, you know, if one of them wasn't interested in sport, I'd still support whatever their interests were. But I would also encourage them in terms of the physical aspects and the fitness side of things. But they didn't need much encouraging because they, they all loved sport growing up. And they all played all kinds of sport. Um, and and still do. They're all in their twenties now, but they all play different. You know, all that, not professional at all, none of them. But um, but they still, you know, they'll still go and play five a side football or cricket and um, golf and various other things. Um, it gives you so much sport. It, it gives it gives them so much. So I, I was hugely encouraged. I was never a pushy parent. Um, you know, I'd go on the sidelines. I watched them all play at various ages um, for years and years and years, and it was all. Pat hates was standing on the touchline, not because of watching them play sport, but of listening to the nonsense from my parents <laughs> shouting out the things I've seen. And, and I never said a word. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I heard some things over the years on touchlines. Um, in, yeah. Um, but, um, but, yeah, I, I'm always supportive, always there for them, but not, not too pushy because, you know, you want them to enjoy it. That's the most important yeah. It's interesting what you say about parents on the touchline. I had a stint as education correspondent for the BBC, and I always remember saying, let's have hidden, put hidden cameras on the touchline at various sporting events and just show, show people what goes on. I've stood on the side of a, uh, many, many stories, but I stood on the side of a five-a-side tournament. You know, my second son, Harry, was playing. They were doing quite well and they got to know, some semi-final and they played against this other team and they managed to beat them and there was this parent on the side who was ranting at his own kid the whole game yeah and I was just thinking oh please stop this and then at the end of the game he actually picked his kid who must have been about I don't know 12, 13 picked him up by the scruff of the neck and he went you'll never make it if you play like that you'll never <laughs> I just thought I felt like saying, I didn't say anything. I felt like going over and said, mate, he's not going to make it anyway. <laughs> Just let him enjoy it. Um, my other favourite one was I was watching George. I, George is my eldest, and um, by his own admission, he was, he was never great at football. Um, and I stood on the sidelines when he was about, I don't know, 10 or 11, and the parent came over and he went, is that your lad? I went, yeah, yeah. He went, oh, I thought it'd be better than that. <laughs> I went, no, you, sh- you should... <laughs> Could see his mother play football. She's useless. <laughs> <laughs> but you get stuff like that. I, I always remember that you were very, very keen on golf well, yeah. in the years gone by, and now you don't play at all. 
No, I stopped about eight, nine years ago now. My back didn't like it very much, and actually my head didn't like it half the time. Um, but, um, yeah, so I kind of, every time I went out, I got injured and I couldn't play for about six months. Then I came back and, it, and my back. Yeah. And I wasn't getting much pleasure out of it. And then when I did get injured, I thought, I'm going to really miss it. But actually, I didn't. And I, I also didn't like my, I love golf. And don't get me wrong, I love, I love it with a passion. I love watching, and I still watch it all to this yeah. to this day, all the time, the big tournaments and stuff. But but it, it got to a stage where I didn't like myself very much on the golf course. I, start, I start, turned into a whiner. And I was saying, oh, another bum, you. So I, <laughs> nine times out of ten, I walk off exasperated. So... Actually, I don't miss it, weirdly. Don't miss actually playing. All my boys play. I walk around with them occasionally, but not said anymore. You said right at the start of of us talking today, you said, I was highly ambitious. Hmm. Are you still highly ambitious? Yeah, I think so. I suppose you come to a certain period in your life where your ambition becomes, your ambition is actually just to maintain perhaps your standards or in the job that you do. But... You know, even now there's still new things I do. We've got, you know, production company, Goldhanger Films, with my partner, you remember Tony Pasta, is my partner, and, um, and you know that's a nice thing. I've never really been involved in in business. Um, I mean, he runs the show, and I try and do my bit, but um, but that's that's doing really well. So that's yeah, I'm still ambitious for in that way. But you know, I've kind of I've found two things in life that I could do reasonably well. It's now perhaps just. Well, I can't maintain football, so I try and, try and still do my TV work as, as well as I do. And I still work, you know, really hard and my prep and everything like that. So, and I, I, I feel blessed and I've, you know, I love my sport. I love football. I love being part of it. And and it's even, even with it being in television, I still, you know, I still love doing it. And despite everything, you've never got into politics. Well, I, I'm interested in politics, <laughs> but I'm, I think I should stay clear as much as I can. Um, but yeah, I, you know, sometimes you can, yeah, you should have should that thing was it? You never talk to anyone about their religion or their politics. I perhaps should have stuck to that occasionally. But um, no, I'm, I, I'm interested in politics and, and fairness and and justice and things like that. So I've, I always have been. Um, I suppose social media gives gives you a platform sometimes to air your views, which um, Perhaps it's not particularly sagacious, but anyway. <laughs> so, but you're not politic. You're not going to be suddenly shock everybody and stand for parliament or anything like oh that. Oh God, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> no. It, it's funny because people have often said, even in football, going to the political side of football, you know, with the yeah. football association or FIFA or something like that. But it, it's not me. I'm not a handshaker and a you know smiley with all that. It's not no. I just, you know, I'd, I'd sooner tell people what they should do rather than try to <laughs> Actually, I've got a clue what they should do. I think we've got so many, you know, imponderables. Final thought. In this mad world, particularly a mad world over the past 12 months of COVID and all the rest of it, how do you relax? How does Gary Lineker get a bit of time to himself and think for himself? Or is that an impossible dream? No, it's not. I get, I'm, you know, I have a nice balance to my life. I mean, it looks like I'm unbelievably busy because if I'm working, I'm on the telly mainly. I mean, I do other things as well. I'm fairly busy, but I have a nice, I have a nice balance to my life. But um, my favourite things really, especially during the last year, has been cooking. 
Um, it's become a very much a new passion. I started when I got single again about six years ago and I got sick of going to restaurants on my own or getting takeaways and stuff. I just thought, come on, get a grip, learn to cook. And it's the best thing I did. I mean, it keeps me occupied. I probably cook at least every day, sometimes twice a day. And it's it's become a real thing. So and I I read a bit and um and I watch a lot of football. <laughs> <laughs> and I find football, watching football on my own at home, if I'm even if I'm not working, I'm, I'm relaxed. But but cooking is 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 the thing that I really you know I've actually got reasonably good at it now. Have you got Gary Lineker's special dish? I've got I've, I've got quite a very wide range of, of things I can do now. I don't. If I had to name one, it would probably be something like, I don't know, because of, because of my history and the fact when I went to Barcelona, I used to obviously love Spanish food. And there was a dish I used to love, where it was like garlic prawns, gambas al ajillo. Um, and I thought, I'd have to learn to do that properly. And then, so, and I have learned to do it properly. And it's, and it's, <laughs> it's as good as it used to taste back then. Gary, it's been a, a joy. It's been a joy talking you. to you, and I, I'm really, really appreciative. Thanks so much. No, absolute pleasure, David. Love to talk to you. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.